Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, the founder of the Macro Compass, and as always with me, my good friend. Andreas Steno, the founder of Steno Research. Great to see you again, Alf. Um, we've had a load of news uh, relevant to markets this week, and um, I personally think that it is a good starting point to have a discussion on inflation pressures after a whole load of uh, releases this week, pointing mostly in the same direction, I would argue. So uh, why don't we start with a discussion on the economy and mainly inflation. What do you make of both US, Chinese and uh, certain European countries' inflation pressures after the releases this week? So let's start from the US. I would say it's generally the most uh, important release, at least for markets. And the latest US inflation report shows, as we can see from the first chart here, that the component that Powell really cares the most about inflation, which is core services X housing, it's trending now down pretty much more aggressively. So, and it's trending around annualized rates, roughly around 4%. That's where we sit today. For reference, not more than four, five, six months ago, the same annualized trends were 8% in this figure. So that's when Powell was very worried late last year. Now we're trending down pretty aggressively towards four. And we can debate, Andreas, whether this is the right core inflation measure to look at. It only represents 24, 25% yeah. of the CPI basket. But as one of my good macro friends would tell me, you should listen to the game masters. The game masters are the central bankers. I mean, they are telling me what is the subcomponents they care. Who am I not to care about the same, right? Yeah. And it's trending down, Andres. I think it's very evident. That's my main take. It sounds like we're playing Dungeons and Dragons here <laughs> instead of markets, but I, I, I tend to agree. And uh, of course, one could argue, and I received a couple of mails on that. Remember that it's the PCE core services X shelter that he's looking at. Fair enough. And you can make a few adjustments, but you get the same trend. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I actually think that if you deduct... Um, the trends in some of the subcategories of this inflation report from the US. I, I, I mean, only a very few couple of components kept the pace intact of the inflation pressure this month or in April, rather. Um, retail gasoline prices, used cars, they kept uh, the, this, this inflation report from being outright deflationary, basically. Uh, so the devil in, is in the details, and the details, they were very dovish. Uh, and interestingly, it, it kind of took like 5, 10, 15 minutes before the market really realized that after the inflation report. Uh, so, so I, I mean, the initial response was, okay, yeah, and what, what, <laughs> this was 0.4 in the month. Is that dovish or not? Well, if you looked at the details, yes, it was clearly dovish. Because I guess my base case would now be a print of in between 0.1 and 0.2. Uh, on the month next uh, next time we get a release. Uh, given that, we first of all know that the spike in retail gasoline prices is no more. Uh, it will come down again next month. We know that used car prices in the CPI index lack uh, auction data from Mannheim. Uh, and the Mannheim auction data is already rolling over quite fast. Um, and it also suffers from from issues with seasonality in, in, um, in January and February uh, and, and into the second quarter. So what I'm saying here is that the two components that kept inflation from really uh, surprising on the downside, uh, we already know that they're not going to, to increase uh, in months ahead. And talking about stuff that um, 
basically lags in the official CPI calculation, what is happening on the grounds, Andreas. Mm-hmm. I am now going to say where housing inflation is likely to head further over the next 9 to 12 months. But I know that you have a very interesting chart that actually might disprove what happens after that in 2024. (laughs) But first, you talked about used car prices. And another good example is rents. So rent of shelter, which is excluded from Powell's favorite metric, but it still accounts for, I think, almost 40% of core CPI. Rent of shelter, as you can see in this chart, lags by 12 months the negotiated rents on the ground. So let's say Zillow, for example, is one example, right? And so the Zillow rents on the grounds have already rolled over pretty aggressively on a year-on-year basis. And that should mean that rent of shelter also comes down. That's another large component of core inflation that is supposed to go down. So it's just a methodology, right? I mean, you have negotiated rents that only move in the official housing calculation on a moving average basis. So you need time to have all the new leases offsetting the old ones until you yeah. start getting the true numbers. So this one is also heading down. Then you talked about gasoline, you talked about car prices. I'm starting to question where are we supposed to see this sustained four, five, six percent inflation that people were, well, bitching about uh, yeah. six, nine months ago. I think that's not the case anymore. Although, as a counter-argument, you have a chart that shows yeah. median rents. So how, how should we look at this? Well, you're absolutely right and spot on that um, rents in the real economy lead the way that you um, present rents in the CPI index uh, due to uh, the way that it's calculated and the uh, survey-based methodology. But the interesting thing here is that you can find a leading indicator of the leading indicator (laughs) for rents. Uh, And I've actually borrowed this chart from... um, my mentor, um, the Swedish deodorant, <laughs> Michael Sarva. Uh, and uh, he um, he found a really interesting pattern between the median asking rent in red in the chart here and the subsequent move in Zillow uh, and similar um, ongoing measures of uh, true rent growth. And it's increasing again. Uh, and it's quite the pattern here. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm actually not too surprised that we see leading indicators in rent space starting to, to point upwards again because we see early signs of spring in the housing market. And I think it could relate to that um, when we dig a bit deeper into the housing market in, in, in a while. We'll also see how some of the leading indicators of, how, of house prices have started to increase again. And that that is striking, I think, and it's, it's a major surprise to me um, and something that uh, I cannot really get my head around at the current juncture because I don't really think that it fits with the overall narrative of the cycle. Yeah. Um, so so let's get back to that in a second because I wanted to show one more chart on inflation before we move to the to the next topic um, because we received news from the producer uh, part of the supply chain uh, from an inflation perspective, both in China and in the US this week as well. And if you look at China first, producer prices printing at minus 3.6% year over year. Uh, Quite the decline and um, something that typically spills over to disinflation in the West with, say, three, four, five, six months of lag. Um, We've seen a decoupling of of the price index in the US and in China over the course of 22, but I I think they will recouple uh, ultimately here. Uh, And 
one of the reasons why um, I see this decoupling ahead is that um, the risk of a of a weaker Chinese yuan is now is now increasing um, in 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 light of of the lack of a manufacturing rebound in 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 China, uh, and that typically spills over to disinflation in the West as well. So what I'm saying here, the producer prices they are declining um, on a monthly basis, or, or and also on a yearly basis in China. The U.S. producer prices printed at 2.3 percent in the final demand. That typically means that consumer prices will print below 3 percent in just a month from now. Yeah, very interesting chart on Chinese inflation and uh, U.S. inflation. Talking about China and commodities for a second, because over the last few weeks, copper and any industrial type of commodity expression linked to China has been taking a bath. Mm. Uh, The credit data coming in from China is less aggressive than it was a few months ago. Chinese consumers seem to be not really keen on participating that much because the deleveraging that suffer from the housing market hit last year seems to be waiting. So this is something I've been clearly wrong about. This was a theme that I thought could play out with better macro data. Time is, you know, there has been quite a time lag between the the first signs of Chinese reopening in December last year. We're now in May. If you got to see something, I mean, the last green shoots could be in Chinese international travel that reopens very mm. soon. But obviously the, the the news, the incremental news we're getting doesn't really push a very strong growth narrative. China is rebounding, but not as aggressively as many people thought. And surely, as you show in the chart, Andreas, from an inflation perspective, they're not going anywhere. Nope. So this is something as well to track because it remains me. I mean, China is a large trade partner for a lot of countries out there. So what happens to Chinese renminbi is also important for global inflation. So so let me um, add a theory here, or a thesis rather, given what we've seen in commodity markets lately. Um, the Chinese authorities typically dislike a weak currency in a situation where energy prices are high, since China imports basically almost all of its energy consumption from abroad. Currently, China is paying say, 23 to $25 less per barrel of oil than we do, uh, since Russia has nowhere else to go. <laughs> um, and interestingly, the, the average price measured in Chinese yuan of a barrel of oil is almost back to the 2020 lows. Um, now that you discount for the discount that they get from Russia and uh, the, the um, subsequent moves in, in the Chinese yuan on a trade-weighted basis. I think that's interesting because when they have so cheap energy, the incentive to allow the Chinese yuan to weaken to help refuel the manufacturing momentum increases. And I, it's not that I see any imminent signs of a devaluation or whatever, but um, at least the Chinese authorities will be much more open to a weak currency given this set of assumptions that we have low energy prices measured in yuan. And uh, we have a situation with the manufacturing sector not rebounding, given that the consumers, uh, us in the West, are not rebounding yet. Yeah, I tend to agree with that as well. And also one way that China could try again to engineer this is by lowering interest rates and making credit even cheaper. Mm. I mean, (laughs) Japan has been trying to do that for 20 years and it didn't work. Once the private sector deleverages and takes a hit from housing market bubble burst, basically like it happened in China and it happened in Japan in the 90s, you can make credit cheaper, but it doesn't mean people are going to want to participate again in in the trend. But China could try, and that could also make the renminbi even cheaper in principle. So I tend to agree with with your take there. Surely, 
from a global macro force perspective, this Chinese growth push, that was also part of the narrative, Andreas, behind the European growth story, right? Because China is a large trade partner for Germany. So if China isn't picking up, then how is German growth going to come up? And actually, the factory orders number from Germany, the retail sales number from Germany, they don't look particularly good, do they? No. I mean, factory orders in March were down 10%. And I, I, I mean, I've asked everyone I know uh, with an <laughs> economic education in Germany, I, and, and I haven't gotten a good explanation of some sort of one-off or whatever in yeah. that number. Uh, and I mean, you, you can look the time series up. You haven't seen such a decline outside of recessions. Uh, and, and that's the, 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 the big question here. Well, is, is Germany in a recession? Um, it would be a major surprise if it actually showed up as a recession right now, especially given that... Uh, Every institutional um, PM that I meet right now have sort of gotten to the conclusion that Europe is, is partly shielded from what's going on globally uh, when it comes to the liquidity stress in the US and um, and all that. So, yeah, what I'm saying here is that I'm uh, slowly but surely really starting to convince myself that Europe will roll over mm-hmm. relative to what's in the price right now. Look, the, we discussed about the euro against the dollar in the last episodes of the macro trading floor, and it's been having a hard time crossing the 110 area mm. aggressively. Uh, it doesn't weaken as well, but, you know, there is this narrative out there that the Fed is done, and I agree, the Fed is mm. done. Inflation is slowing down. Yes, it is. Um, the macro clouds seem to be focused mostly in the US. Think Mm. about regional banks, for example. So all in all, you should just sell the dollar because the Fed is done, nothing happens. And if there is anything bad that happens, it actually happens in the US. Mm. And any other place is shielded from it, be it Europe, be Latin America, be an an emerging market. It seems that it's it's really a sell the dollar story. We also got Stanley Druckenmiller coming out saying that Mm. Uh, his biggest position is his biggest conviction right now is to be short the US dollar. So why don't we talk about that, Andreas? <laughs> Let's do it. Um, I also think it relates a bit to the ongoing soap opera, uh, politically speaking, in the US. Yeah. Um, at least I get loads of questions from from people outside of the U.S. whether we should be scared of of the uh, U.S. actually uh, running out of money without having a solution this time around. And my question is always: you cannot have that as a, that as a base case um, because, I mean, ultimately, if we get into a partial shutdown scenario uh, when the U.S. Treasury runs out of money by late May or early June, I mean, come on, they will decide on something. Uh, maybe a short-term deal to get uh, more time to discuss, but they will decide to kick the can down the road a little bit. I don't see anyone having an incentive to blow things up um, at their watch. So ultimately what I'm saying here is that we're currently in a situation where um, dollar liquidity is actually plentiful uh, since the U.S. Treasury has emptied its own uh, cash balance at the Fed. Uh, We're in within four weeks of the ultimate showdown on the debt ceiling, uh, causing a lot of negative headlines in the U.S., causing a lot of negative headlines for the U.S. dollar. But once the debt ceiling is signed, uh, we know that the U.S. Treasury will swiftly bring the 
um, Treasury General account back towards $600 billion. They wrote that explicitly um, a week ago in the quarterly Treasury funding report, refunding report, and that will basically mean that they will withdraw um, yeah, more than $500 billion from private markets. We know that the uh, Federal Reserve is still of the view that they can allow the balance sheet to shrink towards um, uh, at an excess liquidity level of $2.5 trillion. That's a trillion from here, more or less, 800, 900 billion from here. Uh, and they expect it to be a smooth ride as long as there is plenty of, of uh, plentiful liquidity relative to their rule of thumb of 10% of GDP. Um, Chris Waller invented that rule of thumb, right? So that's 95 billion a month from the Federal Reserve due to QT. On top of that, the FDIC now removes liquidity as well via repaying emergency loans on behalf of banks under receivership. Yeah. Uh, so we, we have like a trio of, um, of agents or authorities all removing liquidity at the same time from, from three weeks from now and onwards. Um, to me, that's a positive dollar story. Uh, because you remove an obstacle, uh, which is the debt ceiling, and you get um, dollar liquidity withdrawals from all major agents at the same time. Yeah. I think this chart that you put up here when you try to basically calculate the liquidity proxy um, mm. or a proxy for, for bank reserves and how much dollar yeah. liquidity gets taken out of the system, if you're right on the debt ceiling resolution, which brings up the general account at the, at the Federal Reserve, so the government basically takes the money away from the system to pump up its own account at the Fed. The Federal Reserve takes money away from the system as well for quantitative tightening. Combination is well shown in your chart. The trend is down. And the other line on there is basically the funding costs for entities outside the United States yeah. that then need to come up and fund. And mm -hmm. where are these dollars? You know, If they're taken away all of a sudden, it becomes more difficult to fund. And generally, the dollar does well in that yeah. environment than the rest, right? Yeah, uh, and the dark blue line on the chart is a so-called five-year cross-currency swap between euros and dollars, uh, and the price uh, on the y-axis is, um, well, the running price of dollar liquidity relative to euro liquidity. That's at least the popular explanation of, of, of cross-currency price, um, and it predicts a move of 10 basis points in the direction of a more expensive US dollar in funding terms. Remember, this is a five-year contract. If you had a three-month contract on, on the chart, it would have predicted a 30, 40 basis points move roughly. Um, so is this significant? Well, it's significant if interest rates do not move uh, particularly much from here uh, on a relative scale between euro and dollar, because then this is sort of the, the moving part of the overall relative price of money in euros and dollars. And it moves in the direction of a better yield in dollars. You can also view it from a yield perspective. Yeah. Uh, I think it's time to go short euro dollar, and I've done so since the last update uh, from us last Sunday. So, um, yeah. I want to expand for a second on this liquidity story on two angles, yeah. Andreas. The first is um, to try and explain what mechanically happens for people to understand at home why a resolution of the debt ceiling is actually negative for global liquidity. Yeah. So you can think it this way. The government effectively will be replenishing their account at the Federal Reserve. What, means it, what it means is once the debt ceiling is over, the government can issue bonds and bills and notes and anything, funding instruments, right? So by issuing funding instruments, normally it does so to fund their spending in the economy. But yeah. this time it's not doing that. It's funding it 
through bonds, through issuance, to actually just replenish its account at the Federal Reserve. So these bonds need to be purchased by somebody, mostly financial institutions. They first go through auctions. They go to prime dealers, to, to dealers, right? So basically these dealers need to make space and absorb this issuance. And the real economy and the financial sector are getting nothing in exchange because the government is not spending the money in the real economy. Yeah. It's just in replenishing the coffers at the Fed. So there are really two ways here, Andres. The first is literally... The, the money outlay that happens when the government takes the resources away from the economy and from the financial markets to replenish its coffers. The second is the duration. It makes a ton of difference whether the government will be adding 600 billion into the TGA through issuance of long-dated bonds yeah. or through bills. It makes all the difference in the world. It's much easier for money market funds, for um, asset manager, corporate treasurers, dealers to buy T-bills. They don't have much risk. They mature very shortly. But if they need to buy, just making an example, 500 billion of third-year bonds, then I can guarantee it takes a lot more risk budget, balance sheet, and you know, appetite for risk. So also looking at what is the refunding strategy of the Treasury Department will make a difference to understand how much is the impact of this TGA replenishment yeah. through markets and the economy. But it matters through these two channels. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I wouldn't count on uh, a different distribution style uh, over the curve than what we typically see from the U.S. Treasury. Um, it's a conservative decision-making process, and it would be, be, be out of the ordinary for them only to issue bills, for example. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so and, 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 and one thing I'd like to add in that regards, and maybe I'm donning my tinfoil, tinfoil hat here, but given we've seen that move from bank deposits to money market funds, uh, I know that um, even when you move a deposit in a, from a bank to a money market fund, the money market fund will buy a T-bill and the deposit will return to the system. Um, that's... Vastly underreported, by the way. But what I'm saying here is that if if the U.S. Treasury unleashes 500 billion worth of T-bills, you could argue that they incentivize a renewed flow from deposits into money market funds, since the money market funds have been screaming for bills to buy. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, I don't think that they want to incentivize that. So I think the bill issuance will be relatively low. Yeah, I mean... Generally speaking, the government is very conservative on changing mm. uh, issuance strategies. We're talking about this buyback of the government to try and boost the liquidity in the treasury market for now months, and they will only do that in 2024. So mm. it takes time for the government to change its strategy. The other thing I wanted to talk about is global bank reserves, because you're totally right, Andreas, on the US, and I have the same view through the quantitative tightening process and through the replenishing of the Treasury General account, dollar reserves will be taken out of the system rapidly. But if you have a look at this chart, which is my global financial money creation index, where you don't look at bank reserves only in the US, but you also sum up China, Europe, Japan, the UK, and you look at the rate of change of this index, you can see that, you know, where you see the green arrow, it, this was basically October to February 2020, October 22 to February 23. So we got an injection of bank reserves globally. But not only the US, but also all other countries in Q2 and Q3. Europe is doing QT. There will be TLT error repayments. Europe is doing quantitative tightening. So it's reducing reserves from the system. Yeah. China is not doing a lot of open market operations anymore like it was doing in the beginning of the year. So, so that rate of change will come down. 
And Japan also, I don't think, will be doing or looking to do plenty of QE going forward with the new governor. So it's not only a U.S. story, but wherever you look at, we are reducing the pace of bank reserves injection into the economy. So this is a global uh, financial money reduction, not only a U.S. one, although the U.S. accounts for most of it. Yeah. And now that Bank of England no longer expects a recession ahead, they could even also be tempted to remove liquidity again, even though they kind of... I mean, indirectly paused since the uh, storm against the guilt market back in November last year. Um, why, why don't we talk a little bit about Bank of England's message? <laughs> I mean, wow. I, to me, it was super interesting to see a central bank that has been almost depressed for a year suddenly say that the recession is not the base case. They've they've been claiming that the recession is the base case for a year, maybe even a bit more. And now they suddenly remove that from the base case. It's, by the way, hilarious, that new forecast. It it, it essentially flatlines, and then there's a confident span from minus 5 to plus 5% of GDP on a quarterly basis. I could, I could probably also... Um, <laughs> claim that I find GDP to be <laughs> to be printing within that range, but <laughs> um, nevertheless, they've they've taken the recession out of the base case, Alf. Um, to me, at a very weird timing. But but uh, what do you make of it? Oh well, they needed covers to hike again because yeah. inflation in the UK isn't slowing as aggressively as they would like it to slow, and you know. <sighs> You have terminal rates in the UK that were not even priced to reach 5%, and you have core inflation running still very hot in the UK. So they just need cover, right? And because the soft and the hard data has been a bit better than expected in the last three to four months, they all of a sudden don't expect a recession anymore. What I find funny is that they use market-implied expectations for whether you're going to have a recession or not. So the distribution very wide bands you you just said. Mm basically comes from market pricing. So they're basically saying to markets, hey guys, if you price a recession, there is going to be a recession. So let us know, please, because we don't (laughs) expect a recession anymore. But if you tell us so, then we'll put the recession in our models. I mean, the Reserve Bank of Australia also told us four months ago that they were done with hiking. I mean, it's, it's, this is it. And the policy is tight. And then all of a sudden they wake up a couple of weeks ago and they Mm -hmm. hike again. So honestly, it seems to me like there are a few central banks out there that are just watching the Fed and mm. praying and hoping that, you know, they get this inflationary trend out there. Maybe they'll get one, but they don't seem in control, Andreas, for sure. No, no, no. And well, what I've said over the past few years is that if the European Central Bank and Bank of England were in charge of solely in charge of bringing inflation down in Europe, we would have had an issue maybe. Uh, but thankfully, we get spillovers from from the Fed as well. So before we go to the trade ideas and the more market chattery of this podcast and this show, the last chart I wanted to show to people is to... Um, justify a rent of mine. And the rent is the following. Look, people obsess about the rate of change of things, especially when it's interest rates. I mean, in 2022, you got interest rates moving from zero to 4% very rapidly. And we saw the debacle it has on, you know, the bad effects it has on tech stocks, for example, especially the unprofitable side. Good. We all know that. Now, though, real and nominal interest rates are not going up anymore. So that means, according to people, that the worst is behind us. And here I disagree. And here is why I want to bring this chart. 
So I hear about when is the credit crunch going to hit? You know, when is this credit crunch going to hit us finally? And a credit crunch is basically a deterioration in credit conditions. But before you get there, you should ask yourself, what are the credit conditions today? So if you're a household trying to buy a house, if you're a corporate trying to borrow today, what are the rates that you face? What are the conditions that you face? And this chart has on the left-hand side, the University of Michigan index, which basically asks the question to consumers, what are the conditions out there to buy a house? Are there good conditions or bad conditions? And this index sits at the worst level over 40 years. Now, the news, mortgage rates are still very high. They've stubbornly been around 6% now for a while. So, yeah, they aren't getting to 7 or 8%, but it's not like people have an easy time buying a house through a mortgage today. And on the right, you see the triple B rated corporate bond yields for 10 years. So this is investment grade rated corporates in the US borrowing. They have to pay 5.5% to borrow. This is the highest level since 2009. So yes, things aren't deteriorating further from that perspective, maybe. But if we, if we remain here, you're basically choking the economy slowly but surely from cheap credit. I mean, US corporates, as you can see in the chart on the right, were used to borrow at 3% for a while. You're now telling them, yeah, you want to refinance your business? It's 5.5%. You want to refinance your mortgage? It's 6%. The longer you keep doing that, in my opinion, the higher the chances that you are going to break something at some point. Mm. So, I don't know. I want to pass across with this idea that the rate of change matters, and it has mattered in 2022. But if you keep borrowing rates at 5 or 6% for the private sector for a prolonged period of time, it's not easy either. Nope. I, I, I agree. And uh, one thing I'd like to add on that is that if you, if you look at both the SLUS, so the Senior Loan of, uh, Officer Survey in the US, but also the uh, European counterpart from the European Central Bank, uh, you actually get... Um, a, a pretty different uh, cycle in the both credit standards and credit demand relative to what we saw in 08 and, and 2000, just to compare it to uh, crises, right? And right now you see a larger hit to the demand for credit than the supply of credit in these surveys. To me, that is a signal that it is the price of credit, not the availability of credit, that is the issue now. That's a very good point. And the demand for mortgages and corporate loans, it's really plummeting even faster than the supply. Mm. I mean, credit is a story of two folds, right? There is demand and there is supply of credit. If the government cuts your taxes, you don't have a say about it. You just get more money in your bank account and then you figure out what do you want to do with it, right? You want to yeah. repay your credit card. You want to go and spend it. But credit, you have to show up at a bank or show up in the market to actually get credit. And you're right, the demand for credit is collapsing, Andreas, but it's very simple. Borrowing rates are too high and they've been too high for too long. And that's what I want to come across with. I mean, at some point, if you do this for a while, you are increasing the possibility that you have choked the economy long enough from yeah. cheap credit. And I think people are underestimating the time, the persistency of tight credit conditions. Yeah. Maybe it's not uh, fancy. The rate of change is fancier. You get a headline every week. Rates are higher, rates are high. Oh, they're higher again. Real rates are higher. And now what, what, what should the headline be? Corporate borrowing rates have been at 5.5% for a week, then two weeks, then three weeks. It doesn't make a news, but it is tight. It is very tight. Yeah. So um, why don't we very briefly discuss how to trade it? <laughs> okay. Uh, I am, let me start. 
Uh, I think I can make it short this week. I remain short euro dollar. Uh, I think it is time to bet on, if not stress in dollar funding markets, then at least a repricing of the dollar in FX swaps and in cross-currency basis in the direction of a more expensive US dollar. Uh, and it also goes hand in hand with my view that Europe will now be faced with such a liquidity decline due to the uh, contraction um, in the outstanding of TLTROS by the end of June, that we should expect a resurfacing of some of the, let's, let's call it fragmentation traits. Uh, I have kept my powder dry so far, but I think we are very close to a scenario where it makes sense to be short the Italian bonds and long the core stuff again. Andreas is attacking my own yes. country. I feel cold here, but I can't defend it because spreads are very tight and I don't think the macro conditions are there for them to get tighter. It's a negative carry trade as yeah. always, so you need to pay to be in the trade, ladies and gentlemen. And if nothing happens, then you lose money, which I think, Andreas, is um, the main comment I have. If nothing keeps happening and the Fed is done, and inflation is slowing down, but we are not in a recession yet, then the standard good old trick in the books that investors will look for is you sell volatility, you buy carry, mm. you buy stuff that makes you money if nothing happens. And we have seen this happening, right? I mean, the Brazilian real, the Mexican peso, the credit spreads, the volatility has been, has been sold everywhere, all over the place. Yeah. People are trying to pocket in money because nothing is happening. So you don't need insurance trades. You don't want these negative carry trades. I, th I have the impression some of them are becoming a bit crowded out there. So I looked at the implied volatility in some of these emerging market effects. It's really low, mm. really low. So, you know, you have some chances to buy optionality here. Although, again, you need to be right on timing. Otherwise, just piss away money, hoping that something happens. Uh, so I'm trying to find ways to monetize the idea where I agree that the Fed is done. I agree that macro growth looks bad, but where can I buy it in a way that it doesn't necessarily piss me money away if no events happen, right? Mm. And I've come to the conclusion that maybe Warren Buffett is right, that maybe Japanese equities are not that bad. Yep. So Japanese equities, basically, if you're not in Japan, you're getting long the Japanese yen to buy that. I mean, you need to buy the yen to buy Japanese equities in the first place. You're buying equities in a place where macro growth, nominal growth, isn't looking as bad as it is anywhere else on a trending basis. You're buying stuff that is valued at decent levels. Yeah. So you might actually get on board this get away from the dollar, buy foreign assets kind of train. But if something bad actually ends up happening, then you don't necessarily get completely smashed. You have at the least that's the way I look at it. <laughs> yeah. Plus, the risk premia are not too bad. I mean, in Japan, you're buying decent risk premia at the time being. It has rallied, but it still offers a, a decent yeah. premium if you want to buy the Japanese equities. I think that's, um, that's what I come up with to be yeah. honest. And when it comes to long-term asset allocation, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the book has been positioned for uh, a defensive macro environment since the beginning of the year at the Macro Compass. It's working okay. It's, that, it's not working as good as I thought it would. Mm. But here is my point. If you look at the data incoming and somebody would have told you, 
Andreas, in May, you can buy the same defensive book. You can basically steer the portfolio towards a defensive allocation through buying volatility or buying the Japanese yen or buying other assets. Basically at the same price as in January. <laughs> if somebody would have told me in January, I wouldn't have believed it, to be honest. But this is what it is. Today, you can buy defensive stocks and sell cyclicals at the same level as in January. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it makes sense still to consider this. You can buy bonds, roughly long-term bonds, roughly at the same level as in January or February. I think it makes sense to still not play the hero when it comes to asset allocation. Yeah, I agree. So Elf, um, if our audience wants to find out more about your portfolio allocation, et cetera, where do they find it? They just go on themacrocompass.com and they find all my pieces, all my tactical trade ideas, asset allocation, portfolios, anything. If they have questions for me, then info at themacrocompass.com. Yeah. Where do they find you? At stenoresearch.com. And this week I've actually added a, <laughs> a logo behind me because I know that a lot of people out there are not able to, to spell it. So stenoresearch.com. <laughs> Guys, uh, last thing before we leave, if you are uh, watching us on YouTube and you have been here for 37 minutes, then thank you very much. And second, why don't you subscribe? There is a button here. Uh, below the video yeah. um, and also there are links in the description of the video if you want to go and check out the Macro Compass and Standard Research but please do subscribe you're listening for us for 37 minutes come on you need to subscribe yeah and you probably need a glass of wine as well now <laughs> but that's a different discussion Elf a pleasure uh, once again uh, I'll see you again next Sunday ciao guys <laughs>